Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, November 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, can revenue from tax-forfeited property help counties fill much-needed deficits? The largest part of this contribution goes to public schools. And without public education in Mississippi, nothing works. Then the head of the Public Service Commission plans to seek legislative relief for victims of multiple telemarketing calls. In our StoryCorps segment, a coming-of-age story, just as a period of suburban migration began changing conditions within the capital city. And here what a new report uncovered about disparities and opportunities for Mississippi's young workers. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Counties, cities, and schools across Mississippi are benefiting from the sale of properties seized because of failure to pay taxes. Uh, uh, Auctions of the properties can put hundreds of thousands of dollars back into public coffers. The Secretary of State's Public Lands Division held an online property auction in July and August of this year, which generated a majority of the sales. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports. Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman is presenting more than $400,000 to governments around the capital city. That $413,000 is divided up between the county getting $86,000, the city of Jackson getting $125,000, and down to Jackson City Schools, which will get $157,000 out of this money. $157,000 isn't going to solve all the issues for the troubled school district, but Jackson Mayor Shokwe Lumumba says it will help. We see children who don't have the amount of books that they need. Uh, They're not consistent with the technology in the classrooms that uh, we see across the country. So it means an opportunity to, you know, affect that to a slight extent. And we have to look for other opportunities to increase that investment even more. Holzman says within the last year, more than 1,700 properties have been sold through the program. The Secretary of State's office has collected over $800,000. Jackson business owner Dr. R.C. Hendricks bought the Southport Mall Shopping Center on Highway 80 in Jackson for $140,000. The commercial property has been vacant for 10 years. My intention is to take this building and do something very great with it. You know, it has great potentials. And I saw that when I saw it, and I said, well, I've got to have that. The Secretary of State's office says the tax forfeited program has netted hundreds of thousands of dollars for communities across the state. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. The cities of Clinton and Terry also received funds from the sales. Since the beginning of fiscal year 2018, the Secretary of State's office has restored more than 440 parcels to the tax rolls in Hines County. Tax forfeited auctions in Greenville, LaFleur County, Hancock County, Macomb, Meridian, Pearl River County, Rankin County, Waveland, Vicksburg, and Yazoo City have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for Mississippi schools, cities, and counties. In other news, the head of the Public Service Commission plans to seek legislative relief for victims of multiple telemarketing calls. Brandon Presley is chairman and Northern District Commissioner. He says he's tired of seeing predatory telemarketers escape punishment through loopholes in the law and abuse of the caller ID technology. He's announced plans to change that. PSC legal staff will prepare draft legislation for consideration of the commission to endorse and request 
during the upcoming 2018 session of the Mississippi legislature. Commissioner Presley tells us those victimized should have every possible option available to them under the law, including being compensated. Federal do not call laws similar to Mississippi's law. Obviously, it allows people to register their phone, uh, cell phone or home phone uh, on the do not call list. Uh, and then, of course, telemarketers who are in that business uh, are required to register. And at that point uh, that they've registered, they receive the list of numbers in which they are not supposed to be calling. And is the state law similar? Exact? State, state program is almost exactly uh, the same as the federal program. What are you proposing happen? My proposal is to give under state law uh, the right for Mississippians to file individual suit against companies that call them for telemarketing purposes. Right now, that right exists under federal law, but it does not exist under state law. Uh, and so my proposal is to ratchet up the heat on these telemarketing companies by making them aware that they would be subject to lawsuits uh, for the calls that they make, aside from any fines that would be due uh, to uh, the PSC and to the state of Mississippi. How often do these companies get a fine? I mean, uh, well, we've issued hundreds of thousand dollars of fines uh, at the Public Service Commission, and we've been able to collect some of those. Uh, by and large, though, these companies don't walk in and pay a fine. So uh, it's my intent with this proposal to bring more heat on them that they would not only be subject to a fine that they may or may not ignore but also be faced with lawsuits throughout the state uh, for this type of illegal uh, and predatory practice. So it's a belt and suspenders approach. The the, uh, right to file suit already exists uh, in federal law. I want to see that expanded to exist in state law. State courts are much more accessible than federal courts, and I think it would be uh, a route that Mississippians uh, would more likely take. And and, uh, I think that they should have the right to file these suits. They're the ones that are getting their... Uh, uh, privacy invaded, and they should be the ones compensated for the cause. But to file a suit, it usually takes some money to do that, to hire a lawyer and then proceed in that way. Do you think that it would be worth it financially for someone to sue? There are a lot of these suits filed around the country already under federal law, so I'm sure expect to see the same thing uh, filed in state court. Uh, and, And many of these actions you see throughout the country are already being taken under the federal law uh, so I would sure, certainly expect with the number of calls that we see coming into our office as uh, illegal robocalls, illegal telemarketing calls, uh, there's definitely plenty of cases out there that could be calls for action. It's interesting. I know for myself and friends and coworkers I've spoken with, there seems to be a glut of those kinds of calls in recent months. I was never really bothered, and now those calls come in pretty frequently. We're seeing an uptick in telemarketing calls all across the state and all across America. Uh, some of the reason is that now under some technology, they can mask or even alter the caller ID that shows up on your phone. So the uh, number may show up as a local number. People are more than likely to answer that type of call, and it very well may have it originated in India on behalf of an American company. And so, again, uh, by giving the right of action in state court, I think you're going to see Uh, more companies afraid of maybe facing class action lawsuits because they are making these type of calls. But there's no doubt there's been an uptick in the call. There's no doubt uh, that uh, these these illegal robocallers, illegal telemarketers are going around not only state law, 
but federal law, and we need to have all hands on deck. We need to have all tools in the toolbox to combat this, and adding the right to sue in state court is just another tool in that toolbox. Do you expect your fellow commissioners to get on board with you on this? Yeah, I think that you'll see the commission come out for this because uh, each each area of the state represented by all three commissioners have the same problem. And again, it's not just Mississippi. It's all 50 states in the nation uh, because this this is an epidemic uh, of, of telemarketing and an invasion of privacy. What's the timeline? Do you expect that legislation would be introduced during this upcoming session? Uh, well, we're working on draft legislation right now. We will uh, circulate that within the commission and look for any amendments, and then hopefully we can uh, uh, get our uh, all all commissioners on board and get a resolution by the commission supporting uh, this bill in one form or another, and then submit it to the legislature for for consideration. Brandon Presley is the public service commissioner for the Northern District. Commissioner Presley, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the PSD's enforcement of the no-call list, visit psc.state.ms.us. Coming up, hear what a new report uncovered about disparities and opportunities for Mississippi's young workers. That's after StoryCorps. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, the host of Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Each week, Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, Associate Professor of Finance at Mississippi College, joins me and answers questions about credit, investing, saving for retirement, and all things finance. Also, we invite you to call in and share your successes in navigating the personal finance challenges that we all face. Money Talks, Tuesday mornings at 9 on MPB Think Radio. Harriet Johnson Oppenheim and her husband Jed live in Jackson. Harriet is a civil rights attorney and a native of the capital city. When they visited the StoryCorps booth during its stop in Mississippi, they spoke about her childhood in Jackson in the 1980s and her journey through the public school system, including her diagnosis with lupus, which happened when she was a teenager. You know, it was the beginning of white flight from the Jackson area to the other bedroom communities here in Mississippi, which are or Jackson metro area, which are, of course, Brandon and Madison, Ridgeland, Pearl. Everyone started to move out. And so the, I guess you could say the decline of Jackson started, but we didn't sense that decline as children. I'm sure our parents did, but protected us from that decline when we were younger, at least. We had no sense of the decline of Jackson, the economical, educational decline of Jackson. So we were just in this big bubble of, of skating rings and mm-hmm. tag kids, kids and stuff, hide yeah. and go. Yeah, kids stuff. And it was it was awesome, you know, going to the store, asking our parents for $2 so we can go to the store together. Was there a time where you became conscious of the change in Jackson? Yes. When at the time, our hangout spot was Metro Center Mall, and that was also located in Jackson. And that was the hangout spot. And as a teenager, I noticed that a lot of stores started to leave, one being our bookstore, because <laughs> uh, I loved reading when I was a child. And when that bookstore started to leave, I was like, oh, my gosh, why did we lose our bookstore? And then the music stores left. And that's where we it really hit us like, oh, we're 
being left out or we're being forgotten because at that time the stores in the bedroom communities started growing and more and more people started moving out there. West Jackson started to become the, what you would say, the quote unquote bad part of town and you started to become labeled as, oh, you, you all live in the hood. And now Metro City Mall is called the Getro, which is, I, you know, I hate when people say that, mm-hmm. but that's what they call it. They call it the Getro because, you know, they say it's in the hood and nothing's really there, which, you know, in some aspects they're right because there are there aren't hardly any stores in the metro anymore so that's when we started to realize that because you know that's what teenagers do we hang out at the malls and did you start to see similar kind of things happen in the schools growing up oh my yes and i actually had a big transition because i actually went to school although i lived in jackson mississippi i went to school in one of the bedroom communities because my mom rachel stepney had actually taught in the county schools for about oh my gosh 36 years and so her being an employee of the county I was able to also go to school there and it was an advantage for her because her she my mom was a single mom and so it was convenient for me to go to school there it's funny because the bedroom communities give their students a sense of another bubble protection so I was protected right however I I changed from the county schools to Jackson public schools when I was in middle school and it was a huge transition from the textbooks to the way the teachers taught to the environment everything was different. And I realized that the difference was, unfortunately, the county schools were predominantly white and Jackson Public Schools were predominantly black. And the county schools had a lot more money. And unfortunately, Jackson Public Schools being the city school didn't have as much money to invest in each child. And I definitely saw the decline. I I wouldn't say in my education, perhaps, but in the focus between each student. We were Mm -hmm. pretty much numbers in Jackson Public Schools compared to the county schools. You actually, you felt like a student. Did you start getting into serious trouble when you came back into Jackson? A lot of trouble. A lot of it was peer pressure. So I thought in order to fit in, I needed to, you know, be a badass, you know, and do things and cuss teachers out and skip school. And and it totally wasn't me, but I actually got in trouble. You haven't always been an angel? I haven't always been an angel. (laughs) In in ninth grade, I actually started falling in love as I thought I, I was and got involved with a senior who... I didn't know had actually gotten involved with several other girls at the school. Drama. It was so much drama. I got mad, and the young lady and I, we got into a fight, and it's so crazy because at the Metro Center, I don't know, the Metro Center is just a hype of all activity, and we actually ended up fighting her and one of her cousins. The fight ended, but the drama of the fight proceeded the next day into school. So I brought a knife to school, and... It was around lunchtime, and I was in my honors English class. And the knife just falls out of my pocket, and I'm like, oh, my God. And my English teacher at the time, I remember her name was Miss Fitzpatrick. She has to do what she does. She can't ignore it. You know, she has to pick it up, and she calls the principal, and the prin- she tells the principal she has a knife. And at that time, I was like, oh, my gosh, my life has ended <laughs> because, of course, Jackson Public Schools has a zero-tolerance policy, and I was devastated because here I am, you know, getting expelled, and I actually end up going to the alternative school. What happened in 1999 that that kind of changed your life and your outlook? 
I have a hard time breathing because, of course, marching requires a lot of strength, a lot of breathing, breathing discipline. And so I, I just noticed that I couldn't do it. I actually had to sit down for a couple of minutes. I didn't understand what was happening. And after a series of tests that take about two weeks, I'm still in the hospital, they find that I have lupus. And what is lupus? Lupus is an autoimmune disease that actually your immune system gets confused. And in that case, it was shutting down my lungs by filling my lungs with fluid. It, it gets confused. And so what you have to do is you basically have to calm your immune system down. And they shoot you with steroids because steroids basically say, tell your immune system, hey, calm down. I think I have my whole life ahead of me. It was just a big shock. So I shut down. I was rebellious. We had, at, the, at the time, Wingfield had this group called Young Life, and it's basically a Christian-based youth ministry geared towards helping youth. One of the workers of Young Life was this youth minister. His name was Winston Ford, and it was an outlet. And so Mr. Ford gave students an outlet and gave us hope. And so I started getting into Young Life. And, of course, Mr. Ford used to have honey buns, too. <laughs> That's always helpful. He encouraged us to do community service. And I was like, yeah, I guess I'll do this. And it helped. It started making me feel better. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Young adults in Mississippi and across the country are facing an opportunity divide because they do not have a college degree. That's according to a new Harvard University report called Dismissed by Degrees. The study examines how employers are focusing on degreed candidates and the effects on middle-class workers. Researchers say it also results in extra costs without employers receiving added benefits. Elise Rosenblum is principal of Advocacy group Grads for Life. The stakeholder group is working to engage employers and improve job prospects for what they call opportunity youth. These are young adults between the ages of 16 and 24 who are both out of school and out of work. Rosenblum tells us opportunity youth need employers to close the divide. So the opportunity divide describes the reality in the country that while talent is equally divided and equally spread across the population, access to opportunity is not. And what we found in our report is that more and more employers are requiring a four-year college degree for jobs that traditionally have not required a college credential. And this has significant implications both for employers who are paying more for college grads and not getting very much bang for the buck and is really perpetuating the opportunity divide in the country because for all of those Americans, and it's two-thirds of Americans that don't have college degrees, they're really getting frozen out of access to opportunity. Why, why are college degrees so important now as opposed to earlier? Well, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily that they're now so important. It's more that employers are, have started relying on the college degree as a proxy and, you know, frankly, kind of a lazy and expensive proxy for a set of skills that they know they need, um, both hard skills and soft skills like professionalism and communication and teamwork. And, you know, it is true that jobs have changed to some extent, 
But what our research uncovers is that when employers require a four-year degree as a proxy, um, they're doing a couple of things that they probably don't intend. Um, what our research tells us is that employers report they're paying a, call, a premium, a wage premium of somewhere between 11 and 30% for four-year degree holders. And we asked them about the benefit of hiring college degree holders. They actually told us that they have they see higher turnover with college degree holders. They see lower levels of engagement for college degree holders in doing the work. And they see equal productivity between folks that have a degree and folks that don't have a degree. So, you know, in essence, what co companies are doing is they're fishing in a small pond because only one third of Americans have a college degree and the unemployment rate among college degree holders today is quite low. And they're paying a lot for the fish that they're finding. So it's kind of a lose for companies. And, you know, from grads of life perspective, we focus on opportunity youth who have not obtained a four-year credential. And this trend is really damaging for their prospects. Let me interrupt for a second. A it is very, very expensive to go to college these days. And I would imagine that leaves out a lot of America's youth. What are their options? Well, you're absolutely right. College has gotten very expensive. It's out of reach for you know majority of Americans. And for Opportunity Youth and other young adults across the country who can't go to college, to four-year college, um, you know, there are other options. There are community colleges. There are really great workforce training programs. And part of what we do in this report is we call on employers to think differently about their talent strategy and look to those other partners, your community college system, your local workforce training providers, and be very clear with them about what are the competencies someone needs to succeed in my company. And then those other providers can train young people who are not on a four-year college degree path with the very skills employers need so that people can get a foot in the door, get a job with the opportunity to have a W-2 that grows over time. I want to go back to the employers for a minute to make sure I understand this. Yeah. They, they want to hire a college graduate for the professionalism, but they have to pay them a significantly higher salary than they would a non-degreed person. Is that do I have that right? That's correct. And you know, the, but and the ironic and you know very interesting thing we found is that in fact employers aren't really getting what they think they're getting with a four-year degree holder because you know while those people may come in with professional skills, they're leaving quickly. They're turning over. Um, they're not very engaged in the work while they are there, and they're no more productive than someone without a college degree. So, you know, this report is not at all intended to discourage people from going to college. What it is intended to do is to say to companies, open your aperture and look across at all the various um, groups of people who could be valuable talent in your company and create on-ramps for them too. Don't limit yourself to just the four-year degree holders. You've told us what the employers expect. What do potential employees expect from the employer? So I think, you know, an, an employee is looking for a company where they can first get their foot in the door. They can actually get through the online screening process. 
Um, and then once they're there, they're looking for a, a company that's going to continue to invest in their ongoing training and development. But then they plan really, to move on? Well, what we see with Opportunity Youth in particular is that when they're given, given an opportunity to join a company, they're extremely motivated and they're very loyal. So many companies are starting to innovate in this space. In fact, there is a real win-win for both employers and employees when you get this right. Because these young adults are motivated and loyal, they stay longer, which drives up retention for the employer. That's money on the bottom line. And for the young adult, it lets them not just get a job, but start to build a career. Elise Rosenblum is the principal of Grads of Life. Elise, thank you so much. Very interesting. Thank you. Have a great day. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, Money Talks. Then at 10 o'clock, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.